0: I'm Izzy, and my guest today is super, super dope. He's someone that, honestly, I I can't even start to describe. I think one of the guys that I've hit up on LinkedIn, and one of those like shots in the dark when we talk about just shooting your shot, I was like, hey, I'm going to ask him to jump on the show, and if he doesn't respond, he doesn't <laughs> respond, but I, he actually responded pretty quick, so I'm super, super honored to have him on the show today. So without further ado, Jonathan, thanks for joining me.
1: Of course, man. Thank you for having me.
0: How's uh, How's the day going so far?
1: It's good. It's a Saturday. I'm actually um, I'm here in Seattle, and uh, you know Seattle's going to Seattle. It's it's cloudy. It's rainy. So you know it's um you know but we'll see if the sun peaks out. But you know it's a good day. It's been it's been a been a long week on the grind. So yeah. looking forward to this convo today.
0: I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm also getting the uh, – I'm in Chicago. It's flurrying. Um, it's April 22nd. And oh, my God. It was just 80 the other day, so it's very weird to me. Uh, I had to pull out the winter jacket again.
1: Listen, I, I think I told you before when we first talked about this. Like I lived in Chicago for a little bit. Um, and in the summertime, one of the best cities ever, <laughs> man. I mean, amazing. The food is dope. Culture. There's a lot of history behind it for people of color, especially. But that winter time, I remember going down. What's the main street where all the, you know, downtown, Mag Mile, yeah, um, or Michigan Avenue, or yeah. whatever. Like just coming around that corner and feeling that wind whip you <laughs> right in the face. It's like it's biting your face. I was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm going back inside. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll chill. <laughs>
0: Oh gosh. <laughs> that's that's just like the perfect description for the city. Um, honestly, like one of the best cities in the world. Uh, but like you said, that winter is just super, super harsh. But so you jumped on the show. I'm super, super excited to have you on and everything like that. You're design director right now. And when we talk about that title and we talk about a role of design and, and directing and, and being a VP, a lot of people seem to think especially in this industry that's like something that you put in all this work to do and everything like that to get there but no one really details their story and that was one of the things and one of the main reasons why i wanted to have you on is like you're Mm -hmm. this person of color sitting in a very prominent Mm -hmm. role within the industry Mm -hmm. talk about how you've gotten there so far
1: i think part of the part of the 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 growth into being able to to handle um, a position like that, it's, you know, you have to have a certain level of openness, I think, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people in creative roles in this industry. And, and frankly, any industry that that has a creative, you know, um, slant to it, whether it's, you know, film, music, etc. cetera. Um, you know, there are some people that have more of like a diva kind of attitude about it and, and more of like, it's my way or the highway, more dictatorial and, you know, I think that can only work for a certain amount of time,
0: mm. and
1: um, I just growing up in New York and and just being exposed to, I mean everything. Um, you you kind of have to have this really open mindset to accepting new ideas, accepting new cultures, new points of view, um, because you know when you when you're you're in and around New York, the New York metro area, New York City, whatever. You just see something new every day so how can you not be inspired by that and i think that mindset helped me just to be open to new things as i've uh, you know um, uh, really progressed throughout my career um i think there's certain stops in my career that that helped to you know really strengthen that idea um you know, uh, living in Hong Kong and being a head of, head designer at Nike, that that opened up everything, you know, because not only am I, you know, thankfully and humbly validating myself being at Nike, being hired by Nike and them saying like, yeah, you can do this. But being in a completely different country that I've never been to before and I don't mm-hmm. have any like people there at all, I have to be open. I have to be open to what the possibilities are there, what the culture is there and, and you know, how to live, work and play and and do business there. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's positions like that. It's um, experiences like that, that get you to a point where you can effectively and, and, and to really be honest with yourself about what it takes and and what it entails to be like, whether it's, you know, design director, like right now I'm a VP of design, but it's, it has like a creative director um, role to it as well. Right. um, In some cases. You know where you kind of take yourself out of the day-to-day to a certain extent of like pushing lines around the screen uh pushing lines around a page um and really doing all the designs to cultivating a story cultivating a a a, an, a true creative direction and creating and setting the stage for the designers that you you work with that you're that you're there to kind of shepherd into their careers um so it takes a little bit of like you know you're, you're part teacher, you're part educator, you're part storyteller. Um, you're bringing all of your experience to bear, and and you're you know I tell you know the people I work with, um, and my designers especially all the time like we're you know you're here to inspire. Mm. Um, if you're in that creative um, position, you have to be able to inspire not only your team, but if you're this creative director, you gotta inspire the entire organization, Absolutely. you know, and, 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 and people outside of the company, like, you know, if I'm talking to you about what I'm doing, I gotta make sure that I'm coming correct and inspiring you and the people that are listening, um, in terms of, you know, what the journey is, what the brand is about, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's, uh, that's how I view it. It's, it's, you know, you're this, this inspiration, focal point, and this igniter for the storytelling around the brand.
0: Mm. Let's dive a little bit deeper into storytelling because sure. that's, that's yeah. something that, I mean, I took classes in school, um, yeah. marketing classes. That was never something that was very highlighted, um, at least for me, up, upbringing and in my education. So what do you think the importance is when you think of storytelling and where did you learn that in the little stops that you've you've made throughout your journey?
1: you know i've always loved you know i have a love for for writing um actually when i when i went to nyu i actually majored in journalism Mm. um when i first got there um with the knowledge that this is the path i was always going to be on like i always wanted to do this nyu just came with scholarship money and i was like okay let's let's do that you know um and i had a professor there pamela newkirk who was an assistant editor at um, the New York Times, mm-hmm. so automatically, this powerhouse woman, she's a black woman, um, and she just she taught me a lot about um, the progression of a story, like how to craft a story that's going to engage, you know, from a journalism journalism perspective, engage your readers and and that sort of thing, and and like what are the what are the components of a story that that not only informs but like causes um, someone to think and to take it with them after, you know, they leave reading the piece. Um, so I think like that little beginning part, um, really helped me to understand, like, I, you know, I'm a designer, but I have to tell a story with my design. I can't just put stuff out there just to put stuff out there. Like, what's the, what's the context behind it? So one of my favorite things when I'm you know working with whatever brand it is is just you know starting with that story. I don't really start with fabric or color. Um, I start with the story. I start with the, the, you know just looking at the brand and, and where the brand's been and, and just kind of extrapolating from there, like what what can this brand be, right. and what also can this brand be that really takes into account things that aren't inherent in the DNA of the brand to create this new context? And how do you like, mix it together in a way that feels new and irreverent, but not, you know, um, uh, you know, contrived? Yeah. And, you know, so I think um, that's, that's a, and that's a muscle that that you kind of have to want to, to um, work on and flex, it's, it's something that you have to work at. And it goes back to the further point, the point earlier about being open, And just being a sponge to all these things around you um, so you can start to kind of create a worldview, not only for yourself, but for who you're, you know, creating things for. Um, You know, I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan of, like, movies and documentaries, especially. especially, um, And the the one thing I, I... really love about documentaries is that you know, you have this you have to tell a story, right? There has to be whether you know, you have to be able to um, give context and and really wrap the story within this contextual point of like, why am I? Why am I talking to you about this? Why does it matter? And, you know, what's the either the end game? Or what's the, the position of the story that makes you think? And, um, you know, with, with fashion, um, there's just so many multiple, you know, uh, touch points for storytelling. It's the brand. It's the materials behind the garment, or the or the the sneaker, or the or the the boot, or the footwear. It's the the um, the provenance of that material. Is it from Italy? Is it you know made in USA? Is it recycled? Like you know these things that you can kind of gather and collect to tell a story that you know ultimately. Makes your fan or your consumer want to part their way with their (laughs) hard-earned money, right? Um, And to be honest with them about it, and to respect their their intelligence and their buying power um, for it. Um, So that's you know, and and I tell that to my designers all the time. You are storytellers. Um, I think some people um, have a kind of a different perspective on what it is that creatives and designers do. I, I feel personally that we are in a Kind of like an entertainment um, uh, business type of mode, um, but it's it's a little bit more nuanced than like you know with music or movies or something like that. But you know we we are here to deliver um, a semblance of joy and and in a, a way to, to to delight the person that's wearing the sneaker or, or you know wearing the clothes or looking at the campaign or whatever. Um, and it all starts with storytelling.
0: So from a story you've worked on so many dope stories already. What, what's what mm-hmm. been like a big story that you've helped tell through product uh, that really stands out in your journey so far?
1: You know, I think uh, there's probably two that really stand out. Um, you know, the, the first brand that I helped start called Guard, which is the last part of my last name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was a, a really... You know, I just came back from Hong Kong and I was back in the States. I was back in New York and I I, I met up with a gentleman who expressed we we both had a similar love for a certain type of fashion, like really fashion forward, kind of, um, you know, edgy kind of, you know, um, use of materials, quality, but just like pushing the envelope. So we we started this brand called Guard and it was... um, we had to tell a story around it. We had to tell a story around like, why is this brand here to exist? Yeah. And, um, you know, we created this collective of creatives, um, to come around and, and start to tell a story around, um, these creatives that were living in New York had a different perspective on fashion, a different perspective on how to like deliver the fashion in terms of like, um, our lookbook. We had a, we have a, um, and someone who I, I still consider um, a friend to this day. Um, this incredible, um, just creative. Her name is Jim Ha, and she's, I don't know if she's still doing it, but she was uh, the creative director for the Guggenheim um, recently. So that, you know, and and a professor at RISD, but, you know, working with her to create a lookbook that's, you know, um, made out of, you know, old newspaper and and, and doing like a more kind of like editorial newspaper um, way of showing, um, product, um, that speaks to the way that people consumed at the time consumed, like information in the city. Um, this kind of like thing that you can grab and take on the go. And it's, it's kind of like your, you know, your coffee and your newspaper for the entire day. Um, so just, just being able to tell like little subtle narratives like that, um, with that brand, um, that's really a high end, like super expensive, um, fashion brand that, that was, um, that was really exciting. Um, Working with Diodora, um, the Italian footwear brand, that was that was a lot of fun because they had this really exciting footwear component. Um, I mean, just, just really incredible collaborations, whether it's from, you know, Raekwon from Wu-Tang with like the purple tape sneaker and like just all like, you know, they were, were firmly and still are to some extent, but, you know, they were firmly within the pulse of just like, um, sneaker culture and, and, and you know, you know being a, a part of that excitement, but the apparel didn't really match that excitement. So taking their heritage, but building something completely new on top of it and building essentially a brand Bible for them where they can take all of these really exciting new concepts that I created for them from design language, um really uh you know, sussing out who their consumer could be, is and could be. Because mm-hmm. you we already know who you have, but who are you trying to get into the tent? Um and then showing them this is what this consumer listens to. They listen to, you know, and I'm being I'm just thinking back to that deck, which is like in two thousand seventeen or whatever. But like they listen to Flying Lotus, they listen to Jake Dilla, they They're really interested in, you know, these artists um, uh, and this is this worldview of this person down to their like political affiliation Mm -hmm. and like what really matters to them. And then taking all of that information and then distilling it down into the product and making something that's really um, progressive, forward thinking, top of the pyramid stuff that they can then take and then distill down into their main line so that even at the at a certain price point, you still have the same feeling and emotion design wise that's there at the top um, mm. of the brand. so that was that was really fun doing that. um you know, and and especially because they have such a a long heritage, just you know it's it's rooted in in football, you know european football. yeah, um but um being able to like show them a different path, a different point of view, that was really exciting
0: so. A few questions off of that, because uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, you were at Nike before Deodora. And a lot of people kind of look at Nike as like the end all, right? Um, they see yeah. like, they're like, oh, I get there. I'm going to retire there. I'm going to do such dope stuff, blah, <laughs> blah, blah. Um, yeah. So when we, when we talk about that and hit on that topic, what were you able to do working at, for lack of better terms, a smaller brand yeah. in Deodora that you weren't able to do at this behemoth that you were spoiled by, but at the same time you were yeah. just like your, your hands were tied because so many people had to approve some, yeah. some collaboration or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and listen, that's what makes Nike what it is. They have, it is a machine. Right. And that is why it, it works extremely well. Um, I think that it's, it's, you know, what I was able to do at Dior was, you know, I can, I can create the color palette, right? I can create, mm. you know, the the bones of not just the you know the concept in terms of like, oh, here's this inspiration image and here's a story, but like, here's the material um, sandbox that that you guys should play in. You know, mm. here's the the detail sandbox that you guys can play in. At Nike, there is a color person that decides the color for the entire, um, whether it's the North American region or the Asia Pacific region, which yeah. which I was in. So you get that palette at the beginning of the season, and it's like, here's your colors. Um, which, you know, And when you're a, you know, I don't know where Nike's at now, but I'm sure it's like north of like 15 billion or whatever. Um, you, you kind of, you need that. You need, you know, semblance of just uniformity. Um you know nike always has this color called volt it is that green that everyone knows it's that like really neon green it's it's mm-hmm. to my mind never going away and and that's i appreciate that that's something that i've brought into other brands where you know i, I want to instill that color that stays there from season to season or that piece mm-hmm. if you're thinking about the air force one or uptowns whatever you want to call them um that piece that stays there from season to season and then you just create variations off of that so um but yeah, I think those, that was the difference um between a juggernaut like Nike and then something more smaller and boutique like Dior where they were like, "Okay, tell us tell us what you think we should do." Right. Um show us the path.
0: I'd love to get your opinion on this. So you're mm-hmm. seeing a world in sneakers and fashion in yeah. general that where we start we're starting to see within the last few years just this like this need for collaboration for brands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's starting to become, I guess, in a sense, overwatered uh, to a lot of people, uh-huh. especially the end consumer. Uh, we start to right. see things like the same Nickelodeon collaboration or the same designer yeah. collaborating with 17 different brands, uh, even though they yeah. haven't sold out of the first brand or anything like that. So from your yeah. perspective, I would love to hear what your opinion is and what goes
1: into a good collaboration you know i i think um and thank you for that that's a really good question actually i i think the 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 purpose for a good collaboration is to or first of all like like we said before it has to tell a story right Mm. if it's just you know there's so much stuff there's so much apparel there's so much footwear no one needs another hoodie no one needs another t-shirt it is a it is an absolute truth. You know, we are inundated with just stuff, right? Right. So, um, when it comes to collaborations, it, it has to, in my mind, it has to serve a definitive purpose. It has to speak to um, an idea. It has to tell a story that revolves, that is not only mutually beneficial for the two brands involved, or the brand and the person involved. Um, But it it, it has to make sense and not just contribute to just like more stuff. And then I know this sounds simplistic, but you know, because of the amount of collaborations that happen, it's like, well, you know, I mean, we all know, like I know just being in the industry, these collaborations are only making like a super small amount of this. So, you know, when you see that collaboration, a between brand B and C is sold out, it's because they made like 50 pieces, you know, for each style. So, um, and and there is like a a glut of collaborations, I think it's probably reached its peak, its zenith point. And, and, uh, you know, I think what you're gonna start to see is that the consumer, especially the younger consumer is going to start to really focus more on collaborations that highlight craft and like the genesis of a um a product or collaboration and something that they can kind of inject themselves into which that's the brand's you know opportunity and their responsibility and their job to help inject that consumer into the brand um you know uh, unless it's like something very like specific and 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 has a really definitive story around it a collaboration between a brand and like either a celebrity and just another brand just for brand sake i think that's that's going to start to kind of lose its importance. And right. you're going to start to see, you know, here's brand a collaborating with this incredibly unique manufacturer based out of Pennsylvania, that's done these custom boot soles for since 1892. Here's their special process doing it. Let's take you inside Boom. of what that looks like, you know, yep. um, and watch us make this. Um, and then somehow, have a component where they can bring certain you know mega consumers or, or super fans along with that process to be at the factory or something like that and have them um really report back or, or you know in terms of what that process is but that to me feels like the more natural way to um do a collaboration you know the one of the collaborative uh, collaborations that i really have always been a fan of fan of was um carhartt um with um Junior Watanabe. And you know, it's it's something that made complete sense. It was taking that like utility utility, that utilitarian aspect of Carhartt, and then mixing it with this um definitively Japanese aesthetic from Junior and, and how they deconstructed. And it's something that resonated. You know, they made like an entire collection around it. It did the runway show, but it still resonates to this day as like the example of like a true collection. And it has like value from that. Um, When you're just doing a collab with like a brand and like another t-shirt and something like that, it just, it just feels like more stuff.
0: It's interesting that you even brought up the next generation, the younger generation, because that was actually Mm -hmm. what I wanted to go into next with this question is like, you have Gen Z that are so forward conscious where they're, they're yeah. very much, look. they look at what they wear and they don't want to look like anyone else. But at the same time, yeah. they're so forward conscious in what of what I'm wearing is actually doing good. And yeah, there's so many like different initiatives going on right now about, let's say a hundred percent of this t-shirt is recyclable or anything like that. Right. Like, are we doing this the right way? Or are we, yeah. because I, I feel as if we're saying, brand a is doing ocean plastics and they're getting it out of the world and everything like that but like at some point are we ever gonna like take a step back and say maybe more materialistic type of attitudes isn't the right way
1: right right yeah that's a good question man um you know i i the people for myself and, and, you know, the, the teams that I work with at my, my current position with, um, Sierra and Russell and their brands, um, you know, the, the brand as a whole is a certified B Corp. Right. Thanks. And that, um, that's just one component of telling the story of, Hey, we're doing this, not just because we want to make a bunch of clothes but there's a purpose behind it. Absolutely. Um, the the key and, and um, the key is to make sure that you're telling that story in a way to the consumer where you're not claiming to have all the answers. Right. Because it is such a, a new I mean, it's still new. Fashion is definitely a little bit slower than other industries in terms of adopting certain you know, sustainable practices absolutely, um, and having just evolution of technology behind it. Um, And and the thing you don't want to do is greenwash everything. You just don't want to say, oh, this is, you know, recycled, uh, you know, whatever, poly or something like that. Because there's, there's, there's issues inherent in all of that. Recycled poly is still plastic. Right. You know, so, um, and once you recycle that poly, that's, once that recycled poly happens, that is the last iteration of recycling that you can do for that material. Mm. Um, So it's, it's, um. It, it, it just comes back to storytelling again, you, you know, you being really transparent with your um, fan, your consumer um, and telling them, listen, we, we don't have all the answers yet, but here's what we're endeavoring to do. Right. You know, we're endeavoring to work with factories that a treat their treat their workers humanely and fairly. Um, we want to use organic cotton here's where we can do that here's where it's tough to do that um and so being able to deliver that type of information to the consumer and, and being honest with them is the best thing you can do while you're on this path to you know hopefully making a brand that's 100%, 100% sustainable um Absolutely. uh you know there's there's so many different ways around this like model of circularity where you can affect um affect change one of the biggest things for me and one of my biggest um uh one of the things i'm, I'm most fond of is just like stop making more stuff like right. really cut down like make a conscious decision to not make more stuff yeah like you know and and that's a thing where if you're looking at it from like a creative perspective you're like okay i can tell a better story because i don't have to make this in this huge collection now i can make less and have a more clear through line from design lines from you know materials if i have a collection of 25 instead of a collection of 125 um pieces and then from a business perspective you know you 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 kind of take that stance and now you're like okay now i can focus on these 25 pieces i can buy deeper into those rather than spreading myself then over a hundred certain pieces. All right. And, you know, you, you can just, you can focus on like marketing and, and just the, the, the promotional aspect of these pieces, you, you have a better tighter story to tell. Um, and thus a more clearer message to tell to the consumer, which then they can attract to and attach to and, and feel more confident about that and be less confused about that.
0: Speaking It's strictly on sneakers here, but, um, like everyone gets pissed when they miss out on the latest sneakers drop or anything like that. Yeah. But in reality, I think it's Gucci and Crystal Glacier did a collaboration, Mm. which didn't make Mm. sense to me. It was like very, Mm. um, off track, but I didn't really read into the story. Yeah. Very random. But, um, most of the pieces were over, I think it was $1,200 plus and they're mostly sold out. And when yeah. I started to look at that, I was like, "Okay, that was obviously made for a select few, um, price point yeah. wise." But then also, like, more than likely, when we look at collaborations, is that the way that we should go? Where it is smaller amount of product. If there is new product going out there, it's smaller amount of product. Yes, the, the most of the consumer base will be mad. But then at the end of the day, it, in a sense, it's better for the earth. You're still being able to tell that story. And then at yeah. the same time, you're also in a sense driving up hype for the next time that you do
1: have a drop. No, I, I hear you. I mean, I, and I think that's a really like, that's a start to like just the way you you posited it. Like, you know, telling the consumer we're doing, this is how much we're, we're making out of each of these pieces in this collaboration. It's, and we're doing it because of this. And it's you know maybe it's going to a non-profit or maybe it's going back to a portion is going back to the workers mm-hmm. that made it somehow. Um, I just haven't really seen that, right? You know, exactly. in, in any shape or form, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because sometimes these drops just happen. It's kind of like you know when when Kendrick or Beyonce just drop an album, they just they just drop yeah. and, and fans come. Um, so yeah, it's it's tough because you know especially with with, with sneakers with footwear. Um, sometimes it feels like the collaborations are there just to feed the resellers, yeah, um, and and to you know give them like you know just you know food um, yeah. to really like drum up you know the the hype behind it, and then you see like you know prices that are like three x, five x, ten x what the original price was, and so that that's a form of hype in itself. Um, you know, people still lining up physically in stores. I was in New York. A couple of weeks ago and then they have a uh, Carhartt. i think um collaborated with um, awake new york mm-hmm. on a assortment and the line was down a block on lafayette street you know um so it's still you know people are still interested in it i just think there is a there is going to be an inflection point you know at top of the pier or you know just a, a a turning point where there's only so much you can consume there's only so much that the consumer will kind of take in in terms of like all these collaborations. And now they're going to want to see a bit more substance behind it. hundred percent. And, and all it takes is for one major collaboration to be a dud, Mm -hmm. you know, for it to be like, well, this sucks. It just feels like you're just giving us stuff just to, to have it. Right. And Mm -hmm. then from there starts this kind of like, you know, this, this kind of a domino effect. So, You know, I think it's just, it just comes back to storytelling, like a reason for being like, what's, what, what is the purpose? Um, You know, I I see one of the things about doing what I do and what I think really smart, you know, creative directors or or design directors do, they, they research and do exhaustive research on their consumer. They, they understand not only what's going on in fashion, but in the world in general Mm. and how these things affect um what they do and um you know I, I to everyone who's listening i, I really suggest going on to high snobiety and, and downloading some of their like surveys and and just kind of like br- analysis of the industry type things and you know they've they've latched onto something over the past couple of years that i i've personally believed in and, and i've seen as well that again speaking to a point you said earlier the consumer is is really being more at tentative and placing more value on quality and craft and experiences mm-hmm. um rather than um uh, a certain level of celebrity or brand uh, you know um a, a brand collaboration right. like they they want to see like what's what's the quality behind this what's the craft behind it um you know there there there's a certain level of like minimalism that i think a, a portion of this, consumers is responding to. That's why, you know, uh, brands like Zenya and Prada, which are like the epitome of like, especially Prada minimalism, they're they're seeing like this resurgence. Right. Um, you hear you hear this term "quiet luxury" being passed around, where it's like, you know, it's there's a more minimalist um, point of view um, being um, put into play. Um, and, you know, even with, uh, you know, working with Ciara and, and Russell, I mean, these are bona fide celebrities. Ciara has 40 something million followers on Instagram. It's yeah. insane. Um, you know, she, you know, talking with her, like she, you know, this is she wants to be an inspiration for the brand, but at a certain point, like she wants other faces to represent the brand as well mm-hmm. that aren't, you know, um, that aren't celebrities right um so uh yeah it's 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 a um it's a complex um kind of point in our in our culture um especially when it comes to like fashion um and so it's it's really it comes down to being really um, fair and and considerate of the consumer and their intelligence Mm -hmm. and and listening and listening to when they when, when they say like, Hey, we want to hear more about this, this other stuff doesn't really matter as Mm -hmm. much anymore. Yeah.
0: What makes you strange on purpose?
1: What makes me strange on purpose? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think, first of all, I think if you, if you, if you go this long in this industry, it's, it's definitely strange, because it is, it is a <laughs> wild industry, there's you, you have to do so much sometimes to, you know, to survive, um, you have to cultivate a lot of relationships, you have to create your own brand, in many cases. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a grind. And um, I still have friends and family who don't really <laughs> understand what I do. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the way my mind thinks, I, I, I think, you know, I heard um, uh, I was listening to a podcast. I forgot who it was. It might have been like um, Questlove Supreme or something like that. Or, but um, Questlove made this really great point about daydreaming. And he he talked about something that I, I know I felt when I was younger, that, you know, people of color aren't allowed to daydream because we have to really, we don't have that luxury. Mm. We don't have that luxury to um, really step inside our minds and, and and really to to create these, like, worlds of what could be. We had to, you know, and, and to buckle down and, and to, like, you know, make sure we got the, the best grades, we got the best jobs. And, and you know, that kind of like, whether you come from an immigrant family, or like, you know, I come from a West Indian family, that kind of like trifecta of like dream jobs, which is like Dr. Lawyer, or, you know, whatever finance, something like that. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's, he was talking about like, the importance of daydreaming, and I'm I'm a dreamer, like and And I think I used to feel strange about that, that I, I dreamt all the time about like, scenarios in this industry, scenarios that are like fantastical and like just all these like things inside your head that, you know, whether they push the the, the boundaries of reality or they're, they're within what you're doing right now, but just like extrapolating what could be. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that makes me strange, but it, it does, I, I think it does help to give me um, a certain perspective when I'm like meditating about, you know, what I want my career to be what I want my creative stamp to be on my family, the people around me, the people I work with, and then like the people that I'm indirectly um, hoping to reach out to yeah. via the brands I work with. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's a, that can be a component of being strange on purpose. It's like allowing yourself to daydream and to just like have these like, you know, whatever you want to call it, like flights of fancy, these kind of like whimsical, ideas like no idea is too strange no no like you know concept is is too wild like it's just how you how you tell it you know what what how do you like communicate your creativity and and are you ready to give that creativity to the world like you know there's a there's a combination of art and commerce to what we do um art and business and how do you you know being comfortable with your art, being comfortable with your creativity, and being you know brave enough to know that it's not for you, it's for everyone else. Like once you create it, it's it's not yours anymore.
0: Right.
1: Um. So I think I don't know if that answers your question, but you know I, I think that's that's kind of what makes me think that I'm strange on purpose. Um, you know, I would say that like know like my choice of like film and movie is like really esoteric but i'm not gonna you know that's a little like you know kind of be it gonna be a little contrived but um yeah i think that that's a uh, that's that's uh that's what makes me strange on purpose i guess